Welcome to Witness, a ministry of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. Join us in person for worship each Sunday at 9.30 a.m. For more information about Covenant, including discipleship and mission opportunities, visit us at www.covenantpresjackson.org. we work through the Gospel of Mark, you, you may have noticed that the further along we get, the slower the narrative becomes. The first few chapters gave us the highlights from three years of full-time ministry. But from chapter 11 to now, we've gotten through less than a week of Jesus's life. Mark is focusing in on what this whole narrative has been building up to, Jesus's last days in Jerusalem. A few days ago, Jesus rode in as a king, and in less than 24 hours, He's going to walk out as a criminal. Our passage this morning is is yet another example of Mark's favorite literary technique, one with which y'all should be really familiar by now, the Markin sandwich. In just 16 chapters, Mark makes more sandwiches than any Subway employee makes in a day. (laughs) The sandwich technique, remember, is, is where Mark splits a story in half by inserting a second story in the middle. What's in the middle, the meat, is usually the key to interpreting the story on either side. What we have here is essentially two trials. Jesus is on trial for blasphemy, and Peter is on trial for his association with Jesus. So first, Jesus is on trial, and and, and we'll see that he is a faithful witness. Look at verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest, And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. The Jewish leaders, the the Sanhedrin, are setting up a preliminary trial for Jesus, a a trial before his trial. Why? Well, the unfortunate fact for them was that Rome had taken away the Jews' right to mete out capital punishments. Now, they might have gotten away with some mob justice from time to time, but no way was that going to fly during Passover. There were thousands upon thousands of very nationalistic and historically riot-prone Jews in Jerusalem at this time. So the Roman officials are watching very closely. That means if the Sanhedrin wants Jesus dead, and they do, they have to get Rome to handle the execution. And if they want Rome to handle the execution, and they do, they have to come up with a reason for Rome to execute Jesus. And and so that's what verse 55 says they're doing. They were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. They already knew they wanted to kill him. Now they only needed a good reason. And, And notice something else about verse 53. It says, all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. Remember, the the Jewish world was, was very fragmented at this time. You had the more doctrinally minimalist Sadducees and the the maximalist Pharisees and the the Essenes hanging out in the desert who really don't play into the story very much at all. But but the point is, there there were these several factions and and they did not like each other and they did not work well together. And and so for the first half of Mark's gospel, you get get scattered references to to the Pharisees, to the scribes, to the elders, to the priests, and so on, but but never all together. Not until chapter 11, that, that major turning point where Mark's narrative slows way down as Jesus enters Jerusalem. The first time the chief priests and the elders and the scribes all show up in the same place is when they came together 
to ask Jesus where he got his authority to teach. And that immediately set off a, a series of tests. The, the Pharisees asked him about taxes. The, the Sadducees asked him about the resurrection. And then a scribe asked him about the greatest commandment. And then, then Jesus asked them a question that they couldn't answer. And so, and so they left him alone for a while. So the next time we see the chief priests and the elders and the scribes together is when they show up in Gethsemane with Judas to arrest Jesus. And, and, and they're together again now to put Jesus through a sham trial, and, and they'll act together one more time to hand Jesus over to Pilate. So apparently the only thing that could bring peace to these competing factions within Judaism was their common hatred for the Son of God. Now look at, look at verse 55. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. The Sanhedrin needs a reason to put Jesus to death, but they, but they also need to keep up at least the appearance that they're giving him a fair trial. Well, according to, to Deuteronomy, a criminal could only be convicted if at least two witnesses testified against him. The standards in, in Jewish trials were, were very high for the agreement between witnesses. If they, if they disagreed even in incidental details, their testimonies was considered inadmissible. At the same time, though, ancient Jewish sources tell us the, the Sanhedrin wasn't allowed to conduct capital trials at night or right before a festival, yet here they are in the middle of the night, right before Passover. So clearly, justice wasn't really their concern. So Jesus is standing in the middle of the room. The, the chief priests, elders, and scribes are sitting in a semicircle around him. There are, there are two clerks sitting on either side of him recording the minutes. And, and for who knows how long, one witness after another is brought in to testify against Jesus. But, but every time, there's some discrepancy in the testimony to invalidate the whole thing. And then they have to start over with a new witness, over and over and over, and the, and the frustration is surely building up in this upper room of the high priest's house, which, which was not where trials were supposed to be held, by the way. Finally, a few witnesses stand up, and, and they seem to have something good. Verse 57, And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Well, we should give thanks to God that we have four Gospels and, and not just this one, because, because John sheds some, some significant light on this passage here. These, these witnesses aren't exactly making everything up. Jesus, Jesus really did say something like this. But the witnesses are, are twisting Jesus' words. Jesus didn't say he would destroy the temple. He actually said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. As in, you, the Jewish leaders, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Of course, John tells us that the saying confused everyone present. Not even the disciples understood until way later that Jesus was actually referring to his own bodies. But, but even allowing for that confusion, these witnesses are twisting Jesus' words to make them sound like a threat when they weren't. These witnesses are grasping at straws to try and make Jesus look guilty. And, and even with these subtleties, they couldn't make anything stick. Verse 59 says that even about this, their testimony did not agree. John Calvin comments that 
Amidst the darkness of their rage, the innocence of the Son of God shone so brightly that the devils themselves might know that he died innocent. So imagine how, how annoyed, how irritated the Sanhedrin must be now. The high priest had certainly had enough. Verse 60, the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But what did Jesus do? He remained silent and made no answer. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Why didn't Jesus say anything? Well, for one, he didn't need to. The, the false accusations refuted themselves, but, but he also didn't intend to defend himself. He wasn't going to lie and pretend he was guilty, but his intention was to be condemned for our sake, in our place. And he was. Look back at verse 61 and following. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. The high priest finally just asked Jesus' identity directly. The Sanhedrin knew that Jesus was received by all the crowds as the Messiah, the, the Christ, the anointed. And they knew that Jesus claimed a, a unique relationship to God, like a, like a son to a father. It wasn't illegal to claim to be the Messiah. Plenty of people had done it before, and plenty more people would do it in years to follow. What, what the council regarded as blasphemous was Jesus' claim to be God's son. Sonship implies kinship. To be, to be God's son in the seemingly literal sense that Jesus claimed to be was, was to share in God's nature. What God is, he is. Certainly, Jesus had made claims like this. All through the Gospel of John, for example, he refers to himself as I am, the Greek translation of the divine name Yahweh. To be God's son in the seemingly literal sense that Jesus claimed to be was, was to share in God's vocation. What God does, he does. Certainly, Jesus had done things that should only be done by God. He claimed to forgive sins, and he interpreted the law on his own authority. The Jewish leaders were essentially faced with the same trilemma that C.S. Lewis described in Mere Christianity. Either this Galilean standing in the middle of them was a lunatic, and he said some wild things, but he didn't seem crazy, or he was a blasphemous liar, or they had to accept that he was indeed the Lord in the flesh. And they chose wrong. They, they had seen Jesus' miracles. They, they had heard his teaching. Why would they still condemn? Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile to God. There's, there's nothing a sinful heart hates more than a holy God. His very existence is a threat to our autonomy. And, and we're no naturally different than the Pharisees were. Now, did the, did, the, did the chief priests, elders, and scribes know for sure that Jesus was, was God in the flesh? Probably not. But their ignorance was willful. They did not see because they did not wish to see. So they committed one of the gravest sins 
ever committed. They condemned God to death. And, and, and we get a glimpse here also of, of what it means that Jesus was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He was the victim of lies and gossip, just like we are sometimes. Jesus knows what it is to have your reputation ruined through no fault of your own. He, he understands our pain. Do you realize that the part of the reason you can go to him with your grief is that he is your sympathetic high priest? He's been through what we've been through. So Jesus was a faithful witness, but, but we'll see Peter was an unfaithful witness. Peter followed Jesus to the high priest's house, but, but Mark says it was at a distance and only into the courtyard. He was sitting with the guards, the, the same guards who will later blindfold Jesus, spit on his face, and knock him around in contempt. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. And it was by that firelight that he was recognized by a servant girl. Look at verse 67. She looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. The Nazarene. That's all Jesus is to this girl. The Nazarene. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? That backwater? It would be so embarrassing to be associated with some good-for-nothing Nazarene. Just like Jesus, Peter is put under pressure here. He, he faces an accuser. But there's a big difference. Jesus' accusers were the most powerful men in their religious community. Peter's accuser was a servant girl. What's she going to do to him? Surely it's not a crime just to be duped by a false messiah. She, she can't bring him before the Sanhedrin and have him put to death. Even if it were a crime, she, she's a girl. Her testimony was inadmissible in that courtroom. The pressure is purely social. The only penalty Peter faces is a moment of embarrassment. Yet he cracks. Verse 68 says he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. He acts like he doesn't even know who she's talking about. Jesus, the, the prominent itinerant rabbi. Jesus, the miracle worker. Jesus, the man who's literally on trial right now in this very place. Peter's just never heard of him? That's what he says, anyway. And then he put a bit of distance between himself and that servant girl. And at the same time, he put even more distance between himself and his rabbi, his, his friend, who was right then suffering many times the shame he just felt. And the rooster crowed just once. If you've got chickens or, or live around them, that's a completely innocuous, inconspicuous sound. It's just a rooster. They, they crow all the time. There's no reason to take notice. But we know what it means. Whether he realizes it or not, Peter is taking his exam, and the clock is ticking. And how will his teacher evaluate him when the time is up? Well, Peter thought he could escape the eye of the servant girl by moving over to a different place, but apparently not. The servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. Social pressure is, is dialed up here as the servant girl gets other people involved. He's one of them, she says, not one of us. 
an outsider. He doesn't belong. But again, he denied it. As time goes on, though, the people around him get suspicious about his answer. Verse 70 says, After a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you're a Galilean. Matthew's account tells us it was, it was his accent that gave him away. As they sat around the fire, presumably making conversation, they, they realized that he wasn't from the area. He was from the same place as Jesus. And how did Peter handle that pressure? Verse 71 tells us he, he swore oaths. He invoked curses. If I'm lying, he says, then let me be cursed. But if I'm, but if I'm telling the truth, then let y'all be cursed. He's, he's like a cornered cat. He's, he's afraid, and, and because he's afraid, he's, he's angry. He said, I do not know this man of whom you speak. This man? He's so, he's so ashamed of his best friend, he won't even say his name. And then what happens? Verse 32. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. The time is up. And Peter has failed the test. And he knows it. He knows what he did. To use an Old Testament metaphor, he sinned with a high hand. He knew what he was doing while he was doing it. He was the first of Jesus' followers to confess him as Christ, and, and now he's the first to deny him. Most of us have had bad experiences with, with fickle friends. We've had people we loved fail to show up when we needed them. We've, we've had brothers and sisters turn on us, and, and so did Jesus. Jesus knows what it's like. He's, he's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. You can take this pain to your sympathetic Lord. But, but there's another side to this. Jesus has been the victim of fickle friends, but, but we are frequently his fickle friends. We have denied Jesus with our lips, with, with our hands, with our minds. Every week we have new sins to confess. Our, our failures are new every morning. We're in no place to sit in judgment over Peter for what he did. We are every bit as weak, every bit as selfish, every bit as sinful as he is. There's one more truth to see in this passage. Jesus will be vindicated. In the midst of his accusers, Jesus only spoke once. The high priest had asked him whether he was the Christ, the Son of the Blessed. And what did Jesus say in verse 62? I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. In this one sentence, Jesus brought together two key texts from the Hebrew Bible. The first one was our, was our Old Testament reading this morning, Daniel, Daniel 7. The second, Psalm 110, the most often cited Old Testament passage in the entire New Testament. So to understand what Jesus is saying here, we need to know what those Old Testament prophets were saying in their contexts. 
Daniel 7 opens with a with a horrific vision of, of four beasts, each one nastier and more terrible than the last. And they come up out of the sea, which was a common symbol for chaos and evil in the ancient world. Nothing good came out of the sea. And these beasts are ugly, unnatural creatures. There's, there's a lion with wings, a, a giant bear-like thing eating enormous mouthfuls, and a, and a four-headed leopard with way too many wings. And the fourth beast shows up. It's even worse than the first three. Daniel says it's it's huge, it's powerful, and it's different. It's it's such a bizarre creature that he can't even come up with a real life animal to compare it with. It's it's got iron teeth and ten horns. I mean, the whole scene really is bewildering. But but then it gets even weirder. The fourth beast grows an eleventh horn, a little one that knocks three of the other horns loose, and and the horns got eyes and a mouth, and it's speaking great things. Lucky for us, Daniel was just as confused about all this as we are. He went and found somebody who knew what it meant. And according to that angel, each beast was a king that would rule the earth. And the last beast was a, a seemingly all-powerful kingdom, and its ten horns were ten kings, and the little horn is another king that will speak blasphemous things against God and and oppress God's people. So, there you go. That clears everything up, doesn't it? (laughs) We could spend years speculating as to which beast is which kingdom, and, and, and people have, but that's not the main point. If it were the main point of this passage, God would have made it much clearer for us. The point we need to get is this. The animals are running the zoo. God gave Adam dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field, and all the creepy crawlies. But but then Adam turned around and started taking orders from a snake. And ever since then, the world has been upside down. Power, dominion, and authority in our fallen world don't function the way God intended them to. And we're all suffering because of it. But Daniel's vision continues. The scene changes, and and now he's in a courtroom. The judge is an ancient figure, pure white, sitting on a flaming throne. It's God. And he's surrounded by thousands upon thousands of servants and courtroom attendants. The judge's books are open, the the books of the law, of of legal precedents, of, of names, of facts. The four beasts are on trial, and they're found guilty. And then comes the part of the passage that Jesus alluded to. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So another divine figure has entered the scene. But he's more than divine. He's also a man. He rides the clouds up to the judge, and and the kingdoms previously ruled over by those terrible beasts was given to him. And his kingship will never be taken away. His kingdom is unassailable. The whole earth will serve him forever. Everything is as it should be once again, because humanity once again has dominion over all creation. And to this citation of Daniel 7, Jesus adds 
another. Psalm 110 begins with these words. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The seat at the right hand of the king was was the place of highest authority and honor. The Lord, all caps, L-O-R-D, Yahweh, the God of Israel, gives this place to David's Lord. Who is David's Lord? Apparently he's a priest. A priest in the order of Melchizedek, an order prior to and greater than the Levitical priesthood established at Mount Sinai. And what does this priest do from his seat beside the high king Yahweh? He executes judgment among the nations. He shatters kings and chiefs and fills the nations with the corpses of the wicked. Now, what does Jesus mean by putting these two Old Testament texts together? Well, clearly he means that he is the divine son of man. He will sit at the Father's right hand and execute judgment. He will take dominion from the wicked rulers of this earth and reign forever. He will be the high priest in the order of Melchizedek, who who mediates perfectly between God and his people. He will have equality with God. He will be served by the whole earth, every people, nation, and language. Though this council will condemn him, he will be vindicated. And if Jesus is the Son of Man, what does that make the Sanhedrin? Well, the Jewish scribes at that time had pretty much unanimously identified the fourth and most terrible beast with their oppressors, the Roman Empire and its Caesars. But the way Jesus uses Daniel 7, he puts the Jewish leaders themselves in the place of the beasts. They are the ones who have been weary in God's people, and the high priest is the little horn speaking blasphemies against God, and Jesus is going to take their power, and Jesus is going to be judge over them. Jesus, the man who received a false condemnation at this sham trial, the man who was betrayed by his own disciple, the man who was denied by his closest friend, this man is the God of the universe who has promised to set everything right. And that will mean, among other things, the just punishment of sin. All those who have dishonored the king of kings or who have mistreated the citizens of his kingdom will receive their due. So what does that mean for you? Well, for one, it means there's no need for you to take vengeance when you're wronged. Your King Jesus cares about every sin committed against you, whether it was was life-altering and malicious or else petty or even unintentional. And he will make it right. Rest in his sovereignty. Trust in his timing. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with everyone. But there's another side to it. If you're sitting here and you have not gone to the Lord in repentance for your sins against him, for your sins against his people, then then the frightening fact is that you yourself will be condemned with the wicked when when Jesus comes in judgment. You you cannot simply make up for past wrongs. No no amount of money given to charity, volunteer work, or even even Christian ministry and evangelism will will undo what you've done, what we've all done. That's the bad news. But there's also good news. When three women went to Jesus' tomb and found it empty, a young man sat where Jesus' body had been laid. He told them Jesus was risen. And then he gave them these instructions. Go, tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you 
into Galilee. Peter wasn't left out. It didn't matter how how heinous or how frequent Peter's sins had been. It, It didn't matter how vehement Peter's denials had been. Jesus Christ forgives. There never has been, nor will there ever be, a repentant sinner whom Christ turns away. That's the good news of the gospel. And it's for you. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to Witness, a ministry of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. 